You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 30th of May 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. We were in constant contact, we thought things through and worked out the details. The result of that became this special operation, as a result of which one person has been detained. Reports of the death of Russian journalist Arkady Babchenko turn out to have been exaggerated. My guests Brian Klaas and Oscar Huadiola Rivera will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including... There will be no touchy-feely, there will be no hanky-panky, there will be no smoochy-woochy. <laughs> and there will be none of that other stuff you're not supposed to know about. Roseanne is cancelled following Roseanne Barr's sacking for racially abusing a former aide of Barack Obama. See if you can guess who Donald Trump thinks the real victim is. We'll look at Colombia's expectedly inconclusive presidential election and ahead to the runoff. And is a second Brexit referendum really a possibility? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Brian Klaas, Fellow in Comparative Politics at the Department of Government for the London School of Economics, and Oscar Huadiola Rivera, Reader in Law at Birkbeck University of London. Welcome both. The Russian journalist Arkady Babchenko can now include himself alongside Ernest Hemingway, Alfred Nobel, Marcus Garvey, Rudyard Kipling and Alice Cooper in the fraternity of public figures who've had the privilege of reading their own obituaries, having been mistakenly assumed dead. Although it should be noticed that while reading his own obituary, Marcus Garvey had the stroke which actually killed him. But Mr Babchenko, who left Russia for Ukraine last year after threats to his life, was reported late yesterday to have joined a long list of Kremlin critics who have died early and violently. To widespread bemusement, he appeared at a press conference in Kiev a couple of hours ago, explaining that his murder had been staged to thwart an actual plot against him. Um, I feel kind of bad throwing this one open to the table. Does anybody actually understand what has happened here? Because I have read everything thus far published about this and I confess to being somewhat perplexed. Well, I mean, it's very difficult. Either they, uh, uh, you know, this is a story about uh, us uh, keep you know, keep talking about uh, Russia meddling everywhere, or it is a, a story about how they stage a story to keep us talking about Russia meddling everywhere. I have to say this, though. Uh, you included him in a most notorious uh, uh, list uh, together with Alice Cooper. None of them killed their marriage while surviving. This guy just did. Uh, well, yes. Uh, one of the things that does appear to have come out of the press conference was that Mr. Babchenko's wife uh, had not been informed in the month or so during this, which this had been planned. One, one hopes he used some of that time to renovate the doghouse. Um, Brian, if we do go by Ukraine's account of this as it's understood, uh, it does actually seem to have been a, well, you know, a, a commendable and well-run sting operation in that Mr. Babchenko is self-evidently still alive, which is a good thing, uh, and they claim to have arrested somebody who had been paid by somebody uh, in order to to bump Mr. Babchenko off. Yeah, so I think there is a real threat, obviously, against journalists who stand up to the Kremlin. And this journalist did stand up to the Kremlin, and he had real death threats against him. And and if we're to believe the Ukrainian government, then there was a plot against him imminently. Uh, I think that there is also the question that we do need to raise about journalists orchestrating obviously fake attempts to stage their own death. 
because the Russian government's goal to an extent in its meddling, in its interventions abroad, etc., is to degrade the value of truth and make people question whether anything is real. And, and this is something that a lot of scholars who work on Russian propaganda focus on. Ukraine helped them in this. They, they, they've now obviously made it so that any time that there are further news reports of journalists being killed or dissidents being offed in some way, uh, it'll make it easier for Putin to say, oh, this is just a scheme of the West. Really, really though, I mean, they, they produced the living Babchenko within, well, within 24 hours. And, and looking at it from his point of view, again, if we are taking Ukraine's word for it, um, I'm, I'm not unsympathetic to the position he was in. If they said, yeah. because if they, he would have every reason to think that somebody from Russia was going to have a crack at him sooner or later. That's why he left Russia in the first place. Um, I don't have a hard time seeing this from his point of view. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sympathetic to it too. I'm saying that like we need to see more information about this. We need to have more details about why it was necessary to take such an extreme step. The Committee to Protect Journalists, for example, has released a statement along these lines which says, look, we're glad he's alive, but we also need to understand why this extraordinary step was taken because it's not a normal journalistic practice. And it can undercut faith in journalists. Now, I think that that doesn't contradict exactly what you said, which is that there are real threats against people who stand up to authoritarian regimes, and they're extremely brave for doing so. And if the net outcome of this is that somebody trying to kill a journalist was apprehended by law enforcement, I'd be delighted by that. But I do think that there is sore, you know, we're still seeing, seeing the unfolding details of what was a very bizarre operation, uh, no matter what. Well, to, to further your case, the Russian spokeswoman Maria Saharova did say that uh, uh, this had been uh, uh, an, an operation for, pro for propaganda, for propaganda uh, effects. And it does. What is most confusing is the fact that the the Ukrainian, uh, uh, you know, government accused uh, Russia of having killed Mr. Babchenko. So now they presented uh, him alive and so on. There is this only makes there uh, is, things more confusing. There is, in fairness, some doubt as to whether the Ukrainian government knew about the operation when they made that uh, accusation. Uh, because again, this time yesterday, when the first report started to come in that Arkady Babchenko had been found dead in Kiev it did not seem an unreasonable suggestion that there may have been a Russian hand in it, as, you know, it, it, we should not lose sight of the fact that there, beyond dispute, there is a very long list of journalists and other critics of Russia who have wound up dead in these circumstances. I, I, I don't know. I, I know there's a lot of people suggesting that this is... Um, by Ukraine or even by Babchenko and undermining of trust in journalism. But I, I don't, I don't know if, if, if he appears a day later and says, I'm actually not dead. I mean, if, if they fake his death and then spirit him away and he's never heard from again, that's a propaganda stunt. This isn't though, is it? Well, but I think, I think the, the point that those critics have, which I, I am sympathetic to, is that How do you know if there's not another story coming out 24 hours later after every story now, right? That this is just some elaborate front for the real story that you'll eventually find out in the future. Is there possibly a lesson there against kicking off before all the facts are in? Yeah, which, but, but, but that's, 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 I think, that's, I think my, my, my point here is that obviously Russia kills journalists. I mean, there's no question about Indeed. this. And we need to not, be, not mince our words about the moral culpability of Putin's regime and the Kremlin in doing that. But we also need to understand the extraordinary circumstances at which a journalist would fake his own death and be involved in that. And, and I think it's just a very serious thing to do. I mean, obviously, if he was imminently about to be killed, then it's extraordinary and it's worth 
the potential breach of trust. There's no question that that would be an extraordinary step. I'm just saying that we have realized in the past, what, three hours that he's alive when we thought he was dead four hours ago. So this is still an early story. We'll know more about it, I'm sure, in the next 24 hours again. And, and, and it may be that it was completely justified. I mean, Oscar is tr- tr- trying to look at this optimistically. It, it does it at least the publicity that this has uh, gained uh, for uh, Arkady Babchenko at least insulate him from any future attempt on his life? That, he, that's he a does very good now, point. He does now have an extremely high profile. That's a very good point. In fact, this is exactly what we used to do when uh, uh, myself and others got uh, uh, you know outed by the Uribe government as uh, supposedly guerrilla sympathizers. You know, serious threat uh, uh, back in Colombia those days. Uh, our journalist Holman Morris, for instance, had to leave the country very quickly. Now we used to make it very, very uh, explicit. Uh, we used to make a, a lot of noise uh, about it, and the more the public knew that this was about to happen, the more they were insulated. Okay, uh, we'll move on slightly. I, I, I do feel like I should mention, just because it seems a shame for him to have got all this publicity without having a new book out, that uh, Arkady Babchenko's earlier book, uh, One Soldier's War, about his service as a Russian soldier in Chechnya, is excellent, uh, unreservedly recommended. But let's look now at the United States, where a similar miraculous resurrection of the sitcom Roseanne appears unlikely. The widely acclaimed and commercially successful reboot of the show was canned yesterday by ABC after its star, Roseanne Barr, issued a series of racist and or conspiracist tweets, obnoxious and silly even by the formidable standards she had previously established. Obviously there is no way such a person could possibly hold any position of power in American public life, but is there a lesson about America here beyond the fact that standards of behaviour for sitcom stars seem higher than those expected of the president? Um, Brian, ABC did act with uh, extraordinary swiftness, really, to to uh, Deep Six A show which was clearly making them a lot of money, but how much of that decision was was principal and how much of it was a resignation to the fact that they were going to struggle for sponsors from this point? So I think there are two things that can simultaneously be true. One is that they should be pl- applauded for how quickly they acted and that it was, I think, principled given how clear the language was. They called it abhorrent and repugnant and inconsistent with their values. There was a one-sentence statement and it just you know brought the hammer down on Roseanne and, and ended the show in one swift uh, statement. At the same time, ABC doesn't deserve much credit for starting the show because Roseanne was always a lunatic uh, who spread conspiracy theories and racist abuse not just on Twitter, but in public life for years. I she, mean, she does have considerable form for this. Yeah, she she claimed that the Boston Marathon bombing was done by the U.S. government itself as a false flag operation. She suggested that George W. Bush did 9-11 himself. I mean, she, she's been a lunatic for a long time. So I think one of the things that this highlights is the conundrum the media faces in the era of Trump, that you want to try to represent the voices of Trumpian people and be a mirror to society, but you don't want to give a platform to overt bigots at the same time that the person in the White House is overtly a bigot. And that's why there's this catch-22, because the thing that was appealing about Roseanne's sitcom to a lot of people was it looked like middle America Trump voter sitcom, which is very different from a lot of the media portrayals that are written and produced by people in New York and Los Angeles that people in Iowa can't relate to as much. But the problem is, you know, when you have this star of the show who is also parodying Trumpian racism, that's over the line. So you have this this complete catch-22 where if you cancel Roseanne's show, you end up deepening this narrative that the media doesn't reflect society. But if you keep her on the show, then you're actually mainstreaming racist bigotry. And so I, I think that what the ultimate solution that the, um, that the network came up with was, was the right one, which is to say, look, 
Roseanne is unacceptably racist. We're probably going to get some flack for this. It will deepen polarization against the media, but we're, that's the cost that we're willing to pay because we are just going to draw a line in the sand and say no racism from our, our sitcoms, basically. Uh, Oscar, the thought that occurred to me, and it's not the first time that this has happened, that there's a there's a common tendency, I think, especially on the left, and not always without reason, to, to boo big bad corporations, but they're often more agile uh, in terms of so reacting to issues like this than political parties. There's this weird paradox that actually commercial considerations can often end up driving social progress, because an, mm. an outfit like ABC, which obviously has to broadcast to America in all its diversity, realizes that they, they cannot keep a, sh- a star like this on their books. That's very true. I remember uh, Adiel Dorman and Herman Matalat's classic on uh, Disney, you know, how to read Donald Duck about their ideology and so on and so forth. And yet, <laughs> I'm with them. I'm with Disney on this one. You know, when Barr was told that uh, her tweet was offensive and racist, uh, she responded, Muslims are not a race. Islam is not a race, leftist. Islam includes every race of people. Now, you just have to change Islam for Judaism to see just how bad that is. It is just unacceptable. This is, is this has nothing to do with freedom of the press. This has nothing to do with the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. This has everything to do with racism. It is intolerable and should not be tolerated. And we should applaud both ABC and Disney for doing what needs to be done. On the subject of the First Amendment, Brian, I, I am baffled frequently uh, by following American discourse around issues like this, given the, the veneration of the Constitution, especially its First and its Second Amendments by conservatives, that they don't seem to understand how freedom of speech works. Uh, the First Amendment of the Constitution, and I am not a constitutional scholar, but in my inexpert reading of it, it does not appear to protect you from being sacked by your employer for acting like a jackass. Correct. And that's why Roseanne is totally free to say those things, and ABC is totally free to fire her for saying those things, and that's they're both compatible with the First Amendment. I think, you know, one of the really striking things about this event, if we zoom out for a minute, is that you have a moment in the Trump presidency, under the Trump presidency, where America is actually confronting a lot of its demons very publicly about sexism and racism and bigotry at the same time that you have a racist sexist sexist bigot in the white house and i think you know what's striking is if roseanne had left her house after saying that the black former senior advisor to the president of the united states was like an ape and went to go try to get a coffee she couldn't have yesterday at Star- at Starbucks because they were all closed for racial sensitivity and bias training. Then the Starbucks employees would go home, they would turn on the t- TV, and they would see the President of the United States using dehumanizing language and scapegoating racial and ethnic minorities. And so you have these two Americas that are competing at the same time where you have this burst of progress and then the backlash from the, the corridors of power in Washington. And I think that the, the most bizarre thing about this is the, the sort of people who are willing to stand up to it are not in Washington in elected offic- in elected positions, but are actually corporations like Starbucks and, the a- and ABC who say, enough is enough. We will draw a line in the sand if Republicans in Congress and Republicans in the White House will not. Uh, I, I did want to ask you, uh, Brian, on the subject of uh, President Trump. I know you are something of a, a connoisseur of, of his bad <laughs> tweets. And I, I know it's a high bar when we're trying to think of his most wretched, pathetic, pitiful tweet ever. But today, I'd be interested in your expert judgment of where this one ranks. Mm. Uh, it's worth quoting in full. Bob Iger of 
ABC, called Valerie Jarrett, that was the woman Roseanne Barr insulted, to let her know that ABC does not co- tolerate comments like those made by Roseanne Barr. G, he never called President Donald J. Trump, referring to himself in the third person, to apologise for the horrible, in capital letters, statements made and said about me on ABC, maybe I just didn't get the call. So the real victim of all this we're learning there is Donald, Donald Trump. Trump. Well, this, this is, is, this is, 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 this is all about him. Is, is this all his about worst him. ever tweet? It's not, I don't think it's his worst ever tweet. I think some Top of the ones... Ten? Yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, to, to, take, to, take the, to take an instance in which a black woman is compared to an ape... Uh, by somebody he has personally championed and make himself a 71-year-old white man seem like the victim of a racist incident because ABC has news coverage about his presidency is ridiculous. And it shows an absurd level of narcissism that you will not see in any other American president. I mean, the the thing that amazes me about outbursts like this, and they're far from unusual among people of Trump's ilk, uh, Oscar, that they're fans, these sort of, um, you know, libertarian right-wing conservative types, they're supposed to be the kind of people who pride themselves on disliking whining snowflakes who ever who forever play the victim and that's all trump ever does does the does the contradiction not occur to them look if we're looking for consistency here we're wasting our time of course there is no consistency <laughs> of course there are just uh, contradictions performative in terms of uh, uh, reasoning and argumentation and so on and so forth but it is very important uh, to emphasize that ba you know was one of uh, donald trump's most high profile supporters. So it is the case that they are feeling emboldened by the presence of a racist bigot in the White House. And if he feels, you know, if this person who is in the White House feels he's the victim for being called a racist and a bigot, let's say it again, he's a racist and a bigot. We're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Oscar Juadiola Rivera and Brian Class. Coming up next, Colombia's presidential election. It's not over yet. Climb aboard Monocle's June issue, where we take a ride through the latest in planes, trains and automobiles, drivers included, in our annual transport survey. But first we set sail in Spain's medical ship, with its crew of doctors and nurses looking to help anyone waylaid by choppy seas. From there we hit a cruising altitude of 30,000 feet, until we touch down in Toowoomba, where one Aussie family is transforming the town with an international airport. Then it's on to the tour bus to see what life is like on the road with the band. Surprisingly homely if you're on a night train coach, followed by a quick stop to meet the journos on the front line of Brexit. Now it's time to get high with a whistle-stop tour of the new elevated parks, popping up in London, Copenhagen and São Paulo, inspired, of course, by New York's Highline. Then we pop corks at Verona's Vin Italy, head to the hills for a spot of camping with mountain wear brand Amundsen Sports and its handsome team, and drop in at Marseille's oldest hardware shop, Maison Empereur, to stock up on, well, pretty much anything and everything we need. Monocle's June issue is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Brian Class and Oscar Juadiola Rivera. As widely predicted, not least here on Midori House, Colombia's presidential election will go to a second round after Sunday's first round failed to elect a candidate outright. It can at least be said that no ennui-laden Colombian cynic can complain that their politicians are all alike. The choice which now faces Colombians, Colombians rather, on June 17th is between the somewhat stiff-shirted conservative Ivan Duque and the left-wing former guerrilla 
Gustavo Petro. Um, Oscar, Duque polled 39.7% in the first round, which is, is not bad going. Is he therefore the favourite? Well, it is likely that he might uh, uh, remain, you know, end up uh, victor in the uh in, in the elections in 20 days. Now, it has to be said that the, the second and third uh, uh, candidates, both Gustavo Petro and close. the person, uh, it, was, it was close. And these two, if you put them together uh, and uh, add up uh, Umberto de la Calle, they would get enough votes to uh, secure a victory over Duque. Now, the problem uh, is whether or not uh, there is going to be some sort of alliance or an agreement on policy terms. Many commentators in Colombia are already saying that Sergio Fajardo should co-govern with Gustavo Petro, that that kind of uh, deal uh, well, it, would take them uh, uh, both uh, across. Uh, Sergio Fajardo, a former state governor, um, it was very close between them. He polled 23.7%, which was not far behind Petro at all. But in Colombian politics, would the endorsement of the defeated candidate mean anything? Is, is is Sergio Fajardo now in actually quite a powerful position? He's in a powerful position. I mean, these votes cannot just be, uh, uh, you know, handed over to the to the other candidate, which is why the public needs to see a real agreement between these two uh, sectors of the centre-left. It's very important because uh, the peace process hangs on the balance. If Duque uh, wins, uh, you know, as, as your listeners know, Duque is really the mouthpiece of uh, former President Alvaro Uribe Vélez. We were talking about Donald Trump's uh, uh, misdeeds. Well, this is, uh, this, uh, this is about uh, uh, the Trump's administration, uh, you know, hand in the region. It is, uh, uh, you know, foreign affairs are very much at the top of Colombians' uh, uh, minds now because of Venezuela. And of course, uh, that means, uh, in, you know, taking into account what uh, the designs of uh, uh, the Trump administration for the region. So uh, a lot of people are very concerned about a, not only a return, a return to uh, violence uh, uh, or, uh, uh, you know, the end of the peace process, but also about uh, the possibility of deepening Colombia's engagement in, uh, uh, you know, in uh, Venezuela's uh, chaos on behalf of uh, the Trump administration. Uh, Brian, this is Colombia's first presidential election since the, the peace agreement um, did end the very, very long war between the Colombian state and the, the guerrilla rebels of FARC. It was not a straightforward process. There was a uh, the first referendum, I think I'm right in saying, was defeated. Do you get the sense that this has had any kind of bearing on this, this presidential election or, or is that now history and this is Colombia finding other things to have elections about. No, I think it's I think it certainly has bearing and I think it's going to have bearing for years to come because these are very very painful decisions that a country has to make. And if you look at peace deals or forgiveness or amnesty deals anytime there's a conflict or a coup or a war it's, there, there's a central problem that is basically if you are too forgiving, you create impunity for the future and you try you create a, a sort of uh, invitation to future conflict because you say, look, we're just going to wa wash everything off and, and, and just put the, consider it under the bridge. But if you're too harsh, you end up alienating those with uh, potentially quite a lot of guns and quite a lot of power. And you've seen this in other places in the world. Uh, in Iraq, for example, the U.S. went too far with this. They, the debathification effort effectively purged everyone who's associated with Saddam Hussein's regime. And as a result, you know, it gave rise to a very long insurgency. So on the other hand, you can be too forgiving of people who committed war crimes. And so I think there's a very delicate balance, but it divides people for a long time in post-conflict situations because the victims can't just accept impunity 
And at the same time, uh, you know, you, you will also have to expect that people who were complicit in those crimes uh, will want to be folded back into the legitimate political process. So it's going to be a contorted and very contentious uh, debate, not just in this election, but I assume in future elections. I mean, Oscar, now that we're down to the the last two men standing, as it were, what strikes you are going to be the issues that decide it? Is, is the peace process and its future going to be a factor? I'm very glad Brian, uh, uh, you know, clarified that point for us because that's exactly uh, the environment in which these two candidates are going to have to make their case uh, before the Colombian people. It is the case that uh, the peace process is difficult. It is a very uh, dilemmatic situation. Uh, you need to, you know, as it were, grab both horns of the dilemma and, and run with them. Uh, you cannot go too far in punishing. You cannot go too far in, uh, uh, you know, letting people uh, walk free. And actually, the peace process has been designed to avoid those two extremes. But that needs to be explained very carefully to the Colombian people. Many of those who will vote for Duque do so because Duque has already promised that although he's not going to smash the, uh, the accords, uh, the, he's going to simplify the uh, judicial institutions that would have to deal with it. And that's uh, a problem. So is that the economy? and uh, mainly, uh, you know, reconciliation uh, among Colombians. Those are the three important issues. Okay, well, finally tonight, uh, to the almost audible throbbing of veins beneath thousands of tinfoil hats, George Soros is poised to launch in the next few days a new campaign to save, as he puts it, the EU, a key plank of which will be dissuading the UK from leaving it after all. The mechanism he proposes is another referendum by way of testing whether the enthusiasm of leavers has been at all tempered by the undignified spectacle of the UK's attempts to extricate itself thus far. Uh, Brian, how plausible does this strike you? Uh, plausible does this strike you as? Pl you know what I'm saying. How likely does any of this sound to you? Another referendum? Well, I mean, I think that if you'd asked me two years ago, I would have found it implausible. But things are changing uh, in the debate around Brexit. And there's a lot more uncertainty. There's a lot more hesitation. And there's also this, I think, growing sense that a lot of people weren't sure what they voted for when they voted for it. And so th there, there is a very powerful, uh, you know, coalition of people who believe that there should be a democratic choice about the final deal. Given this that is, it is the argument that the UK voted to leave but didn't vote about where it was going. That's right. And I think, you know, I mean, there are a lot of voters who voted for very different reasons and they had a vision of Brexit that was not actually the vision of Brexit shared by people who are now negotiating in Brussels. Um, I, I do think that this sort of fever swamp around George Soros conspiracy theories, though, is, is something that wraps up almost every Western political story these days because Roseanne Barr tweeted a conspiracy yes. theory about it yesterday, too. Are you working for him, Brian? <laughs> no. It's unbelievable. But it is. You would I, say that, of course. <laughs> um, Oscar, what do you think the choice should be in a second referendum? Because it strikes me that of the many difficulties with this, it would need, if it was going to be a reversal of the original decision, it would need to win by a huge margin to stop Lord knows what from occurring. Well, let me put my constitutional scholar hat on and say that <laughs> referenda uh, are 
specifically a very undemocratic uh, uh, means and uh, they are hugely problematic. I'm not sure that having a second referendum is uh, precisely the way forward. Among other things, because it's very difficult to ask people detailed questions. They will never know exactly what they are voting for. Mm -hmm. uh, and on the other hand, because as you just pointed out, Andrew, we would we would require a huge difference. And I'm because yeah, the, the, the nightmare yeah. scenario would be, wouldn't it, if there was another, another referendum? Another win. But but if it was fifty one percent remain and forty nine percent leave, we we will we would be there. And actually, that's not an unlikely scenario at all. I don't think uh, so. Uh, I would uh, refrain from uh, you know uh, thinking that. You have, to, in order to kill a referendum, you need another referendum. That's a bad argument. It's a really bad constitutional argument to say that uh, once the people, you know, the people have decided in a referendum, then there is nothing else we can do. It's not the only, uh, actually, it's an undec undemo really undemocratic uh, 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 means. Uh, uh, it's a terrible tool. It's used, it has been used historically by totalitarian regimes mostly. I mean, where, where does it come from? It's very different from a plebiscite, which is uh, uh, more participatory. And on the other hand, uh, there are many other uh, tools in the British constitutional agenda to deal with this in a better way. Now, I I am uh, with Soros, and I am not being paid by him. Actually, you know, you're, you're uh, one of his volunteers. Not then. at all. <laughs> uh, but we do need to uh, do as much as we can to uh, to stop Brexit. But we should not fall into the trap of uh, uh, going for another referendum. That might well, make things even more complicated. The, the last one was such fun. It's something to look forward to. Um, Brian, just before we go, we do have a few seconds left. We need you to explain to us how your great nation, the United States, has got to a point where the government is actually having to tell people not to toast marshmallows on steaming hot lava vomiting from the core of the earth. I, I don't know if I can explain it. Because uh, lava's hot, it right? Is, it is very hot. But this is, the same, this is the same type of stuff where you have to post uh, photos around the Grand Canyon that say don't take selfies on the edge because people keep, <laughs> people keep falling off. Um, you know, I mean, it should be common sense, but it, alas, it is not, so... Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Oscar Guardiola Rivero and Brian Class, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Tom Hall, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Amber Roberts. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900, The Entrepreneurs with Matt Alagaya. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. For now, I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.